Hey, this is Tracy Vandeventer with Little Things First Podcast. And this is Jim Martin with Little Things First Podcast. We are so glad to have you here today as we talk about the little things that make a big difference in education. Right. And you know, it doesn't have to be big sweeping changes. You could just look at one action and start getting better at one thing. And it just snowballs into amazing results. So, yeah, and you can take the advice of, you know, Tracy and I in that that's what we did with this podcast. You know, like we could have waited forever. Yeah. And we just realized we just needed to like jump in. Just do it. And take it a little bit mm-hmm. at a time. Little Nike theme there. Just do it. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> All right. Listen, we've got another uh, collection too. Uh, authors jumping on here. So we'll have to do a little three-way connection with them. But who is it, Jim, that we're going to be talking to? So it's uh, Dr. Kyleen Beers and uh, Dr. Robert Probst. And um, I think he goes by Bob. But they have written a series of uh, great books, um, starting with Notice and Note. My the favorite. Notice and Note, uh, two books, one on... Um, well, just everyday reading, and then also one on uh, nonfiction. And then uh, I think you mentioned what disruptive learning? Yeah, disruptive learning. Okay, so that's always good to disrupt our learning. <laughs> I don't, I haven't read that book, but they have a brand new book, Forged by Reading. Yeah, we got a little sneak peek at it, and it is really cool. And people need to definitely get this book. It's so good. We're going to talk to them about all of their work today. So let's call them up. Okay, first we're going to start with Kylene. Here we go. Hi, this is Kylene Beers. Hi, Kylene. This is Tracy and Jim with Little Things First Podcast. And hold on just a second. We're going to ring Bob. Okay? Okay. Hello? Is this Bob? Yes, this is Bob. Thank you. This is Tracy Vandeventer and Jim Martin with Little Things First Podcast. We're going to merge our call so all of us can talk at the same time, okay? Okay, Tracy, that sounds good. All right, here we go. So I, I just wait until yep. you speak to me again. Okay. <laughs> all right, we should have everybody here. So I'm here. Jim, are you here? I'm here. Kyleen? I'm still here. How about Bob? And I... I'm here, or wherever here is. I don't know. I don't know where here is anymore, or what day of the week it is. I know it. I know it. But we luckily are all on the same call at the same time, and we are so grateful you have given us some time to be with us and to share some of your ideas and talk about your new book, Forged by Reading. And um, we're we're just you know thrilled because uh, so many good ideas. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. We're excited to talk about the book and excited to talk with you and Jim. Thanks. So where did this, where did the idea for this book come from? Bob, Jim, why don't you lead off on that one? Jim broke up a little bit. I didn't hear the question. What was it? Oh, I'm sorry. Just what, where did the idea for Forged by Reading come from? Uh, well, I think it came from the, uh, 
growing awareness that a lot of people were not actually using the resources available to them in the writings and the speech of good thinkers about various things to shape their own visions of themselves and their world. Uh, they were making decisions based upon affiliations rather than upon reason and logic. They were, they were making intellectual choices about who to side with based on whether they were Republicans or Democrats, policemen or civilians, uh, Catholics or Muslims. And we thought that uh, people ought to be taught to take responsibility for forging themselves out of the language available to them. Wow. Boy, Bob, that was a good answer. I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> well, I hope somebody copied that down. <laughs> well, you, you know, Tim, what I would add to that is this is really a work of transformation. We started wanting to write a book about independent reading. And the more we really began to question ourselves about independent reading, the more we had to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be an independent reader? And we think oftentimes in classrooms, it becomes really easy to get caught up in the mechanics of setting up an independent reading program. You want to make sure you've got enough books. You want to make sure you've got a way to um, evaluate how kids are doing with the books they're reading. You want to have a place and a time. And we lose what Bob was talking about, which is the overarching goal of not the program, but the reader. And as we realize that, um, our own thinking shifted and therefore our writing shifted to focusing less on the stuff of the program and more on the importance for our democracy for each person to actually be an independent reader, which for us is almost synonymous with being an independent thinker. Yeah, sure. Could I, could I add to that? I Please. think that the, the notion of um, independence is often freedom from something. We want to be independent of mm -hmm. somebody or mm -hmm. something else. But uh, with that independence, uh, with that freedom from, comes freedom to do something, and often that freedom to do something is an obligation to do something. So the independent reader is not just free from the constraints a teacher may offer, but he binds himself, she binds herself, we think, to um, an obligation to think responsibly, reasonably about the texts that she has offered. She's not totally free. She's not free in the sense that the balloon that breaks its string is free. It just goes floating off on the breeze. Rather, she is free to apply reason and logic to the evidence that she has offered to make responsible uh, decisions about who she is and what she believes, what she thinks. So... And independence from means independence too. Right, right, and and sort of claiming, right, claiming that independence. I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump into a quote that I highlighted in, in the book, and 
um, I have I had such a zing with this, huh. and it talks about you know what this idea of normal is, right? Issues and you know going back to chaos of the normal day of school, but we really don't even know normal. That's kind of the preface. But then it talks about here's here's the quote: We understand the inclination to say. We will stick to standards we must cover and avoid the disagreements that these topics will, will arouse. But we can't. We must embrace a standard that says we will all sit in tension, in confusion, in discomfort, and listen compassionately. And I, I had to say I had kind of a zing in that section because I've really been watching how, over the last couple of years, how we as a school like system, have avoided that tension. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and I want you to talk about that and some of your experiences. Well, sure, Bob, do you want to you jump in first? No, no, not necessarily. I was just going to say that that's the, the wonderful power language gives us is to deal with complicated issues. And if you aren't dealing with complicated issues, all you're doing is sort of extracting data, extracting facts, uh, uh, remembering, recalling names, dates, and places. But language gives us the power to deal with all those complicated and usually troubling issues. You know, when I remember when we wrote that section and we wrote it and rewrote that particular <coughs> sentence several times, because we were we were looking for that word tension and mm -hmm. to be able to sit in that tension um, without becoming so irritated at either yourself or what you were hearing from others that you shut down. And we know, and we know it personally from being in school districts where we've been told you can't discuss that topic. Yeah. Or yeah. having colleagues be told you can't say Black Lives Matter. Right. Um, I mean, we've not had that told to us directly, but we have had colleagues that have been censored in that manner. And so as we were writing that, we were remembering what it feels like from the teacher's point of view of wanting to discuss critical issues of the day and having either an administrator or a school board that is more concerned about the parent that wants to stop the conversation. Mm -hmm. It's never the parent that wants to further the conversation. It's the parent that wants to stop it. Right. And so what we realized is we need to help teachers recognize that home, and Bob and I both believe this deeply, home is where parents have an obligation and a responsibility to talk to their kids about what is meaningful to them. And that, that's what a parent gets to do. It, it's, it's part of what you do as you're raising your children. And yet, parents have an obligation to make sure children understand all, all the facets and all the facts of a situation. And so school is the place where we're not there to espouse particular values or views, but to say, let's all read about this topic. 
And then let's have a conversation on the language that the author used. Let's look at the sources that the author presented. Let's look at who the author is and the biases this author brings in. And as we learn to do that, then perhaps we'll, be, we'll become a, a community of people that don't hit share on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook without first asking themselves, what am I actually sharing? Is this valuable enough to be shared? Because I've, I've really come to think the word share on um, all of our social media platforms is the most dangerous word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, um, what at what know. age could this begin in schools? You know, because... Can it start as early as kindergarten? And, and how do you um, navigate between, um, you know, learning to read and, you know, using literacy as an empowerment tool? You know, Jim, we were in a third day classroom and we were reading an article about vampire bats. And because, you know, what little third grader wouldn't want to read about vampire bats? And come to find out, vampire bats, we didn't know this until we read the article, um, actually cause a problem in Panama where they attack cattle and attack them so often at night that the cattle lose enough blood and they become, the cattle become anemic and they die. And so the cattlemen see the vampire bat as a real threat to their livelihood. On the other hand, the article pointed out that biologists see the vampire bat as something that's positive because the saliva from the vampire bat um, releases an anticoagulant. And Mm. they think if they could study that, it might help us with people who have blood clots. So this was a written for third grade, fourth grade kids article. And we had third graders as they read it, who began to say, well, why does this say that vampire bats need to use, um, is it sonar, Bob? I guess it's yeah, sonar, sonar to find what they're going to attack because cows are really big. So mm-hmm. why wouldn't they just look and say, there's a cow? I mean, <laughs> a perfect eight-year-old question. <laughs> and then a, another kid said, can we read more about this? And of course, the teacher's jumping up and down with joy that the kids want to read more and come to find out the author of this article left out the important fact that other bats use sonar, but the vampire bat has large enough eyes that it normally just looks and says, there's a cow and attacks the cow. (laughs) And so these eight-year-olds said, wow, you got to think about this because now it sounds like he's on the side of the biologist. So You know, this was not a conversation about race. This was not a conversation about inclusivity with our LGBTQ community. This was not about 
what is the difference in the Black Lives Matter movement versus saying Black Lives Matter. This was a conversation about a science article, and it led kids to saying, I better sometimes check some facts. So I think we start with our youngest ones. Um, Bob, I remember the time you talked about telling one of your young grandkids that giraffes, they wanted to know what sound a giraffe makes, and you said they don't vocalize. And then it made you wonder, do they? And so Bob's the opposite in age of our first grader, as you can get. But he was willing to go back and have that conversation and say, hey, guys, when I check this, it wasn't accurate. And that's well, that we was a case, yeah. We were trying, especially with that example, to distinguish between errors and lies. Yeah. Uh, I had been talking with the grandkids, and they were very young, so we were asking, what sound does a cow make? And they said, moo. And what sound does a duck make? And they said, quack. And I said, what sound does a giraffe make? And they hesitated, and I said, well, a giraffe doesn't make any sounds because it doesn't have any vocal cords. And they laughed. They thought they'd been tricked. And then I got to thinking, that's not right. Um, I had made a mistake. Now, if I had told them that twice, the second time it would have been a lie because I would have known it was wrong. So I went back to them, and I said, they do have vocal cords. They just don't use them very much because they're located in this big, long throat. Hard to find them, I guess. I don't know. But in any event, they don't use them very much. And, and so, but the, the other example of a controversial issue that caused us more headache in dealing oh. with the parents yeah. and the teachers. Oh, yeah, you know the one I'm talking I about. I do, I do. Uh, we had uh, brought in an article about fracking. Unfortunately, uh, the community into which we had brought it, uh, in the community to which we had brought it, fracking was... A common practice of many of the oil men who lived and worked there. And some of the parents didn't want the issue of fracking even addressed. Hmm. Whether we addressed it, we didn't take sides on for it, against it, it's bad, it's good. It's uh, mm-hmm. uh, They didn't want it addressed. All we wanted to do was raise some questions about, uh, here's, here's a technique for getting gas uh, or... or methane or whatever they did get with fracking. Uh, it has economic consequences for a community. It has uh, physical consequences for the terrain. It, uh, you know, how do we negotiate among all of, all of these facts? And we thought that dealing with the facts was an appropriate thing. Dealing with the controversy was an appropriate thing for the students to learn to do. Not just ignore it and, and, and let it go away. It wasn't going to just go away. Mm-hmm. So um, we got into a little bit of hot water by even suggesting that it was worth discussing that issue. And, and I think what made that particular example so heart-wrenching is parents called the principal and said, we're not sending our kids to school to learn to think we're teaching them to be there for the teacher to impart what it is they need to know. And as the principal had to relay those words to us, Hmm. you could tell that originally he was 
just taking the side of the parents. He didn't want to deal with a controversy. And as he said those words, he stopped himself and said, then why are they coming to school? And we said, that's right. You know, what we have found is when the teacher goes in and says, we're going to read this piece of literature because it talks about race in America, all sorts of red flags are going to go up. But if the teacher goes in and says, we're going to read this book, and as we read it, I want us to be asking ourselves, does it make you think about anything that's happening today? Then you're letting the book do the heavy lifting, Mm. and the conversation is centered on what's happening in the book. And it allows kids who want to say something and may feel marginalized to say it through the actions of the character. When the character did this, it reminded me of, and I understood how the character felt because. And and it's a safer way for our marginalized students. And we have many marginalized students. Sometimes it's just because they're the one that's never called on. Sometimes it's because they haven't made it into that, quote, popular group, you know, end quote. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is because they're part of our LGBTQ community or they are a race that's not the majority race in the school or their home language is different or their socioeconomic status is different or their religion is different. So many things make kids feel marginalized. Sometimes it's because they don't have on the same tennis shoes as everyone else. Mm-hmm. Literature always, especially our our young adult and children's literature, always gives kids the entree into the discussion without having to start with, let me tell you what happened to me. That can be too raw, too personal, too hurtful and um that that's where oftentimes teachers say i don't want to bring that up well you let the character bring it up Mm. you let the book bring it up and that's why we think such a diversity of literature in our schools is critically important do you feel that um a way to sort of build openness would be to like send home a list of readings uh, ahead of time. I'm thinking about an example from this fall. Uh, I was working with a teacher in Oregon and they had uh, sent home a book, which they thought was a pretty benign book that addressed an African-American character. I wish I could remember the name of the book. I, I don't, but there was a character that was an African-American and another character that was a Caucasian and they it addressed some of the Black Lives Matter discussion, but it was interesting. The book actually didn't necessarily say one was good or one was bad, and it showed how complicated the issues are and, you know, their friendship and things like that. But but there was a really big backlash from the community, and and it just created so many hurt feelings from the teacher's perspective, and, and there was some fury and tears. And I'm sure at home, too, there was a lot of, you know, misunderstanding. So I, I keep going back to that. I'm like, what what could you do to try to build more possibility, I guess? Do you have, do you have advice mm-hmm. that way? Sure. Bob, you want to go first? No, you go first because I want to reflect on this for a moment. 
Go ahead. Well, you know, I think the first thing that's important to do is when teachers have decided to share a book with the whole class, which is very different than I've got a book in my classroom library mm-hmm. that a particular child may choose to read, or we've got books in our school library, or there are books in our public library. Mm-hmm. You know, each of those require a different level of selection. Mm-hmm. When a teacher has decided that this book is valuable enough that I'm going to use it in either a small group literature discussion or in a large class discussion, she needs to, he needs to make sure that the literary quality is there in the book. So we've got to move way past, I really liked it. Mm-hmm. We actually need to look at reviews from professional journals and see what others have said about the literary merit of the book. Because the first thing that's going to happen is someone's going to say, why are you teaching that book? Mm -hmm. And it's my favorite, and I just loved it. In that situation, is that those are not the appropriate responses. The second thing the person needs to do is understand, maybe first make sure there is a censorship policy in the district, a written censorship policy, And they need to understand if it includes any part of book selection that they ticked off all the boxes. Okay. Um, If if a teacher wants to go so far as to say to parents, this year we're going to be reading a range of books. Mm -hmm. They include Prince Award winners, the Orbis Pictus Award winners, the Newberry Award winners, They've been on the New York Times bestseller Mm -hmm. list. School Library Journal recommended this with five stars. And they are the following books. And you are invited to read them along with your students. Mm -hmm. That will stop a lot of parents right there. They just want to be informed. But if a parent comes and says, I don't like this book, the rest of that sentence must be for my child. Okay. Any parent has a right to say, I don't think this is an appropriate book for my child. And in that case, I always say to the parent, then this, these are the standards we're addressing with this book. These are the things about literary elements they're going to be learning with this book. This is the complexity of this book. And these are the assignments. I need you to find another book that will allow all of this to happen and then we can assign that to your kid because it's not my place to find that substitute if the parent wants a substitute they've got to match the goals and objectives i've got with that book of the same literary quality the same Mm -hmm. genre the same time period but if they then want to say i don't want it in the school i don't want it taught then you're about a process. Mm-hmm. You move into what the American Library Association says is your process or the National Council Teachers of English, and it really becomes quite simple yeah. because th- then you've got sort of like a contract and you're just moving through all the pieces of it. And Bob, you were trying to add something, and I just talked well, about it. Yeah. I, I the other the other. Uh, aspect of, of our response might be 
that we are not teaching a particular book in order to mold kids into a certain way of thinking, a certain shape, uh, a certain... We don't want them... We're not trying to instill certain beliefs in kids. Rather, we're trying to teach them to deal with issues, questions. Uh, we're more interested in questions than in answers. The kids will provide the answers. The only molding, the only shaping we are trying to do is trying to get kids to pay attention to reason and evidence, to logic, to uh, uh, the consequences of choosing a particular position. Uh, that's that's what we are trying to do. We are not trying to transform them from good Catholics into atheists, from good atheists into Baptists, or anything of that sort. We are simply asking them to consider the perspectives and the information that texts offer them, and to think about it. Mm-hmm. And so, and now that may not that may not be a defense that satisfies the parents who want us to shape their kids. But that's one of the reasons we said that uh, reading offers us the potential to change, for change. Uh, we are reluctant to say that books change us, but rather to say that we are empowered to change ourselves by the insights and information books offer us. But the agency, the change the power to change, the obligation to change resides with us, the readers, instead of with the texts. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, I have a, um, a, just a couple more questions. First of all, you reference in the book, you know, well, we run into motivation issues all the time with reading. You know, kids just don't want to read. They don't want to read what's assigned, what might be in the basal, um, you know, and they might express that in various ways. Maybe they don't want to answer questions about a text. And you talk about the three big questions. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because you kind of throw that out there as a way to um, to perhaps get kids into the process of asking some of their own questions. Sure. Um, One of the things that we know that turns kids away from reading is when all of the focus stays on the text. And one of the things that we know from research next kids to reading is when they can make a more personal connection about the text. So let me go back to our Vampire Bat article. When we first distributed it, a lot of the kids said, ooh, gross, I don't want to read about bats. (laughs) And we said, you know, the only thing we want you to think about as you read this is what surprises you. And they wanted to know, well, where were the 10 questions they had to answer? And we said, no, 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 we just (laughs) want to know what surprises you and that's that is our first of the three big questions and what that question does is it situates the reader both in the text and in their own mind and their own reactions and so suddenly without realizing it this text is now about me because mm-hmm. it's what surprises mm-hmm me and kids began to have 
all sorts of conversations, including that one that led to their biggest aha, which was when they said, you know, I was surprised that they need to use sonar. So we always encourage teachers to start with that one because it resituates the reading from being something where we're simply extracting from yeah. the text to more interacting with the text. Yeah, Bob, and that, That's the key, the key phrase, I think. It shifts the attention from extraction to transaction. Yeah, so just taking recall. stuff out of text to, as you said, interacting with texts. By shifting the attention to the impact of text upon the reader, actually we found you sort of redouble the kid's attention to the text itself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, uh, but the text matters because it strikes you, it hits you, it awakens a question, a curiosity, it provides you with an answer that you didn't have. It's, 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 it's the text's effect on you, the reader, that causes you to be interested in it, motivated to read it. And that, of course, leads quite naturally to that second question, which is, what did the author think I already knew? And that's a way for the teachers to stop being the person to presume that they know what kids are lacking as far as background knowledge, but instead to let the kids themselves say, you know, he keeps saying this is in Panama, I don't really know where Panama is. Or he says that the bats live in this particular type of cave. I don't know what that cave looks like. And so it, it just says to the kid again, I'm not going to presume what your lack of background knowledge is. I'm going to let you tell me. And it, it's the best way I've ever seen to differentiate and individualize a text. And then that last question, of course, becomes the critical question. You wouldn't ask this after every text, but sometimes to just reflect, you know, how did this text change me or how did it confirm what I already knew? Um, how is it challenging my thinking? If we could do that from time to time, then um, I think it reminds us that reading does more than entertain us. Reading helps us find our way to ourselves and our way to a different place in the world. That's that's really powerful. Actually, in I remember in the Common Core coming out, right, we were sort of discouraged from making those personal connections, right? And right, uh, right. just really have to go to the facts and the recall and then author's purpose and try to build into those strategies. So I love this sort of opening back up and trying to make it personal and yes. connection and uh, allowing, you know, students to to grapple with what they're, what they're reading and the, the meaning that they're building. So thank you. Uh, we have one last question that we ask our guests, and uh, we wanted both of you to take time to answer if you could. If you could step in a time machine and go back to your younger self and give your younger self advice, what advice would you give yourself? Ah, that's a good question. <laughs> what advice? Hmm. I don't know. 
I've given a lot of other people advice. I'm not sure what I, advice <laughs> I would give to myself, except um, uh, maybe go slower. Uh, back off and think about things. Make sure that you don't make a decision because you are part of a particular group. We're not part of a particular group. But to, to learn early as possible to take responsibility for thinking things through rather, rather than just following the lead of the brightest or strongest or most charismatic uh, uh, within your, your group. I, I suspect that it would be that. Take responsibility uh, for, for your own thinking as carefully and uh, rigorously as you can. I think mine would be to to not be afraid to fail. I'm a I I think I was a kid that very much was a parent pleaser and a teacher pleaser, and I wanted to you know make the A's and make the A plus and and be seen as someone who was achieving high. And that means sometimes you're not taking the risk, or for me it meant not taking the risk with exploring a different way of thinking. And so I think my advice to me would be don't be afraid to fail because it's in those failures, those moments of getting it wrong that I think we learn the most. And um, I look back and think, gosh, there's so much I could have learned. And, but I think that kind of learning I'm looking for would have required that I be less caught up in getting something right mm. and more caught up in discovering what was right. That's amazing. Yeah, those are really good really good pieces of advice actually yeah. for everybody. So thank you for that. And um, Forged by Reading, when does it come out exactly? Because we what we mentioned we got it, to get a sneak peek. Yep, it goes on pre-sale November 17th. It's already up on the Scholastic website and ought to be on Amazon for pre-sale November 17th. And it drops into people's hands on December the 8th. Oh, wonderful. It's such a good yeah. book and such a great resource, especially now. I think we really need it right. in our schools. We need to be um, fostering empowered learners who can do their own thinking, who can think at high levels, who can ask good questions. Um, and literacy is such a, a powerful way to to make that happen. So thank yeah. you for offering this book. And I'm wondering, can we have you back sometime in the future? Because, you know, I have a lot of questions about some of your other work as well. Yeah. And uh, we, we, like, would, uh, we would love <laughs> to, and we would even both promise to not be driving around. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Quite happy to do that. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much.